Arizonans heard the plans from a new governor for the first time in eight years as Democrat Katie Hobbs started her second week in office. In her State of the State address, she set the tone for her legislative priorities for 2023 and emphasized a desire for bipartisanship. It didn't take long for some of the Republicans in the legislature to make clear they have little desire to find common ground on issues like abortion rights. Hobbs spent much of her speech talking about public education, another area where she and her Republican lawmakers will have to avert a rapidly approaching funding deadline that could abruptly end the school year for some and unleash broad new doubts about the state's commitment to education. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your host, Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Republic. Today, we want to take a closer look at Hobbs' speech and what it means for lawmakers and the public. Here to help me do that is Arizona Republic reporter Stacey Barchinger, who covers the governor, and Daniel Scarpinato, a partner at Ascent Media, who helped write these speeches in an earlier life as an aide to former governor Doug Ducey. He ended his tenure with the governor as Ducey's chief of staff. Listeners of the gaggle might remember we had Daniel on last year to discuss the state of the state. Stacy, Daniel, Happy New Year, and welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having us. So good to be here. Thank you. Okay, let's start with the big picture. Daniel, I want to start with you. You know what a governor's trying to accomplish in these speeches, the multiple audiences that are targeted in this. What kind of impression did this rookie governor make? Well, I think that a lot of thought goes into these speeches. The first year is difficult because you don't have as much time to put that thought into it. And really, I think even this governor had less time because of the lag in knowing who won the election. So the transition was limited. But, you know, you have multiple audiences and it's really determining, you know, who your audience is. And and there's always going to be kind of this balance between, you know, what makes good press and PR and what's going to play well in that room. Because at the end of the day, the governor needs to get her agenda. I think she already faced some real challenges with the political dynamics and obviously um, the Republicans still being in the majority in the legislature. I think that some of the content of this speech probably exacerbated those tensions and, and probably pushed Uh, some Republicans who may have been willing to come to the table pushed them away a little bit. It strikes me, Daniel, that you also had a very different perspective watching this state of the state speech, right? I did. Normally, I'd be running around frantically sitting in the gallery, worried of whether the teleprompter is going to go out or not on the governor, how things will be um, reacted to on Twitter. But this year I was a guest on the floor of my partner, Matt Gress, who was being sworn in to the legislature himself. And so it was a much different perspective and a more relaxing, <laughs> enjoyable one than being chief of staff or communications director for the governor. Okay. Stacy, you've seen a few of these things too. How did this speech go over from your perch? Yeah, I mean, I think for the first time in 14 years, Democrats heard a speech that they really liked, right? There was a lot in there that spoke to Democratic priorities. You had Senate Majority Leader Raquel Tehran say afterwards that this is this speech was exactly in line with what their caucus wants to accomplish this year. 
talks about water, talks about education, um, talks about affordability issues. And that was really apparent, you know, on Monday on the House floor, you had the Democratic side of the room stand up and give regular applause, whereas the Republican side sat down, some people left, which I know we'll talk about. Um, But there was a lot in there for Democrats and a lot that really spoke to Governor Hobbs' pledges and promises along the campaign trail. Okay, so both of you have alluded to what is clearly the biggest storyline heading into 2023, and that is how will this Democratic governor cooperate, legislate, and move forward with this Republican-led legislature? Two Republicans, Justine Wadsack and Anthony Kern, turned their backs at one point. Some walked out. That sounds like a bad start. So is it as bad as it looked? And what I'm getting at is, are these the kind of members who ultimately would be part of any kind of coalition that emerges around either the budget or any other kind of legislation that they are truly trying to get passed this year? Was this theatrics or is this really sort of a bad omen? Well, I think it's the reality of where we are at politically and and what both the governor and legislative leadership will have to navigate through the this session. I feel like there is an opportunity. I think that for some bipartisan accomplishments, the I guess if I had been advising her, um, I think that the going after the new Speaker of the House's you know signature policy accomplishment, the ESA is going after that so aggressively, that probably doesn't help. I think, you know, there was a lot of talk about the economy. I think, uh, you know, I heard several Republicans say, well, do we get any credit for that? And even on the education issue, uh, where I think that there is a desire to deal with some of these issues, like allowing schools to, to spend the dollars that have already been allocated and probably allocating more, I think it would have been helpful probably for her to acknowledge that she herself worked with Republicans in the legislature to do just that, and she wants to do it again. So I think there were some missed opportunities to reach out beyond, you know, the Democratic caucus, which clearly loved the speech. But I I think that there needed to be outreach to Republicans, and I think she probably made her job more challenging with what I thought was more of a floor speech than a state of the state address. So you've done these kinds of speeches. You know what goes into the prepared text. Things are not supposed to appear by accident. There's a good deal of thought that goes into it. The mistakes that you're referring to, do you think that was intentional? Do you think it's the oversight of someone who's not had to do one of these before? Do you think that this on balance is something that was a missed opportunity or a calculated mistake? I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know the dynamics of their team or the new governor's management style, but I will say that when we were doing these speeches, and this is why it's hard to say, you know, that one person wrote uh, the state of the state address because it truly was a team effort and there were so many outlines and versions and the governor was very engaged in the process. And there was open disagreement and debate about what should be in the speech. For instance, as the communications person, I might say, hey, let's drop this bomb. And the legislative team would say, okay, that'll be really bad and make our jobs really difficult, even though 
the Arizona Republic and Howie Fisher will eat it up. And so, you know, we would have those debates and we'd settle on something. And ultimately, the governor would make that decision. If you recall, a, a couple years ago, he called for getting rid of legislative immunity, which was a big issue at the time. There were fierce debates internally about whether that should be included and, and whether or not. And uh, it landed like a thud. I mean, it, it and it went nowhere. It was something he felt strongly about, but it did make the working with the legislature more challenging. I don't know how strategic they were about the content of the speech, but I do think um, Governor Hobbs doesn't have a 10-point mandate and doesn't have a legislature of her own party. So I think it would behoove them to do that kind of outreach. And I'm sure within their team, there is a debate happening over do we take a more progressive approach because we haven't had the governorship in you know a decade and a half, or do we take a more pragmatic approach where we work with the business community and the legislature? And I'm sure they're having those debates right now. It feels like with this speech, kind of the more progressive lane is the, is the one that won. It's interesting to me that the item that she was talking about that got a couple of these Republican lawmakers who are on the farthest right of the caucus up out of their seats and out of the room, though, was protecting abortion rights. And this is something that she has said throughout the campaign trail, really highlighted since June when the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. In my mind, it would have been weird if she didn't mention that, at least in the speech. So what is she, what is she supposed to do? She's campaigned on it. It has to be in the speech. And this is the moment that these Republicans like Justine Wadsack and Anthony Kern took to make their public statement, which I think kind of goes to she can try to work with those lawmakers, but how much ground is she going to gain really in doing so? It's also worth noting that Governor Hobbs had a availability for reporters on Monday after the state of the state, and she was asked a question kind of along these lines, which is, what in there is really bipartisan? What in that speech really will appeal to Republicans? And in her mind, it's the water issue. She talked a lot about wanting to recreate these offices that will deal with shortages. And to her, in her perspective, that was her olive branch to Republicans to come work with me on this issue, which is possible, we think. so. And, and Ron, I will say, I mean, they're drinking out of a fire hose. And I looked up at the gallery and very proud for... Uh, Ali Bones, the new chief of staff, and other people who are filling these roles, because I, I've seen and been through what especially this is like in the first session. But I will say, I think that there wasn't really, and people always say like, oh, there's not enough specifics in the speech. I mean, it is a speech. It's not a policy document. I did think that there wasn't a ton that I saw in terms of announcing new initiatives. I did think there was a lot of discussion about things that she wanted to roll back. And that's where I think, you know, that is going to create a lot of tension. And in many ways, I think the, the budget that she'll release on Friday is kind of DOA because the things that she outlined that she's not going to include are all signature programs that the people in that room championed and are very proud of. On that front, clearly the emphasis was on public education. Two things stood out to me about her speech. 
First was the looming funding cliff for public education. If schools don't get clarity about continued funding levels fairly soon, some have indicated they would go so far as to end the school year early, perhaps by March. Secondly, Hobbs talked about ensuring financial accountability on former Governor Ducey's signature voucher-style program that will allow public money to follow students to private schools. The previous legislature passed a massive expansion of school vouchers that lacks accountability and will likely bankrupt this state. In fact, funding this expansion is poised to cost Arizona taxpayers an estimated $1.5 billion over the next 10 years if left unaddressed. That's why when my budget is delivered on Friday, you will see that it truly invests in public schools and students, ensuring we are a prepared Arizona. Let's start with the funding, Cliff. Stacy, explain this issue to our listeners, and what did the governor say on that front? Sure. So in the, the most simple terms, there is a uh, constitutional provision approved by voters decades ago that says schools can only spend so much more each year. It's a cap, and in order to lift it to allow schools to spend the money that is available to them from the state budget, the legislature has to pass a resolution to allow that to happen. Adding pressure on the discussion this year is in Governor Ducey's final year in office, the legislature had a booming budget. They earmarked another billion dollars for public education. And so now the discussion is whether schools will be able to spend that or not. Governor Hobbs is on the record opposing this limit. It's called the aggregate expenditure limit. And in her speech on Monday, she talked about wanting to do something about it. And instead of using her own authority, such as to call a special session, which she has suggested she might do in the future, she urged lawmakers to support a resolution by Republican Representative David Cook, which would be a single-year solution to lift the cap and let schools spend this money, potentially averting cuts and furloughs um, and other, other impacts if something is not done. Daniel, did you hear anything either from the governor or from any of the members that suggests near-term optimism on this issue for you? Yeah, I, I think that if there's an issue where, you know, there could be consensus, it would be here. Um, it's pretty common sense. I mean, the Republicans, again, are, we wouldn't have hit this cap had Republicans not put record resources into public education. So I think they'd be wise from a political standpoint to talk about how they've done that and are going to allow the schools to spend the money. So I think that there's an opportunity. And I think that talking about the life issue that Stacy brought up, if you recall during the campaign, Governor Hobbs, I believe, had said she was going to lead with that as a special session on the abortion issue. That has now changed. And that's probably good. I mean, it's the most divisive issue in American politics, and I don't really see that going anywhere if she had waded into that. So I think something like this is much more of an area where you could see some bipartisan agreement. Republicans should talk about this as a good problem to have. Yeah, and I and it is you know it was voter approved in 40 years ago, um, but it is in the Constitution, and so I think that it does need to be addressed. And what happens to it long term beyond just this year, I think is a discussion a lot of people are open to as well. 
The only thing I would add is in a statement um, on Monday, the Republican leaders of both House, Leo Biasucci in the House and then Sonny Borelli in the Senate, put out a joint statement that addressed the aggregate expenditure limit. And they made it sound like it's just an issue of when, not whether it happens. Mm -hmm. So it might not be immediately like Governor Hobbs wants, but they have signaled interest in lifting the cap. Let's shift to the voucher style program. Stacey, what is Governor Hobbs seeking on this? She talked a lot about accountability and transparency on the program. She has said that if that bill had landed on her desk when she was the governor, she would have vetoed it. But as Daniel is saying, with Republican majorities in the House, I think there's a very slim chance that that program gets touched or removed in any meaningful way. So she talked about accountability. She wants to make any school that receives any amount of public funding subject to oversight by the state auditor general, which puts out a report looking at how much money goes to teachers, to other classroom needs, to administration, things along those lines. She also acknowledged just how hard that would be to do with the Republican majorities in the legislature, but also That's public money that goes to families and then on to private schools. So the mechanism for actually keeping track of it and oversight would be really tricky to figure out how to do that. There is the administrative challenge in trying to legislate something that would address this and accomplish what the governor is talking about. There's also a political reality, Daniel, that this is a pretty important policy area for many of these members who were part of it last year. Um, Talk about the politics of this and how this is received. Truly, is this DOA? I think it is. I mean, like I said, Speaker Toma um, was the lead champion of this issue. He feels personally passionate about it. And there were three Republicans in the House in the last legislature who were really the holdouts and who eventually were brought onto this program through a series of negotiations and other things that became part of the budget discussion. Um, Those three people who may have been open to some changes here are gone. And my sense is that this new legislature, that the Republican caucuses are united on this issue. And I think it is a fundamental issue for conservatives related to school choice. Um, So I think this would be very challenging to happen. A budget does need to get passed. And so, you know, it just depends on on what issues is she going to be an oak tree on and on what issues are the legislature going to be an oak tree on um, and where is their flexibility. I would be surprised if it was on this one. Let's shift to another issue that has been very divisive over the years and has newfound resonance with a lot of folks, and that is on abortion rights. Governor Hobbs has said she wanted to strike down the Civil War era law that bans virtually all abortions. That would seem to leave the state with the ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy signed into law by former Governor Ducey. Stacey, where is the governor on this issue now? We're not getting the special session that had been mentioned earlier. What What is the end game here? Well, these are still priorities for her, but we've seen in the last week or so a realization on her part that accomplishing much in the legislature is going to be such an uphill battle. So on Monday, when she was speaking to reporters, she acknowledged that the likely path forward to do this was a vote of Arizonans in 2024. Like Daniel had said, 
the pledges to call a special session on abortion, whether it was the 1864 ban or the 15-week ban, really irked some Republicans in leadership in the legislature. And so stepping back from that, I think, gives her an opportunity to find common ground on some of these other things. Um, most unforgettable quote of the last couple of months was Senator J.D. Mesnard, who told my colleague Ray Stern that he felt like that special session was the governor punching them in the face right out of the gate. So not doing that, I think, gives her a little bit of ground. But like we're talking about, I mean, the political world is so divided that these issues are so complicated and so partisan to be determined how much progress she makes. Daniel, this is an issue where there's a good deal of passion, certainly on both sides, and Republicans feel very strongly about preserving the law as it is. There's also a lot of public polling that suggests that the public is not where the majority of Republicans are at on this. Is there any space for any kind of accommodation? Is there anything that appears likely as a policy area that they can pursue, or is this one just bound to be unresolved as we move to the next year's legislative session? I think that the comment, I think, that in the speech that Republicans who did walk out or, or what have you had an issue with was that 90 percent of Arizonans want abortion to be legal. I refuse to stand by and do nothing as my daughter or anyone's daughter now has fewer rights today than I did growing up. An overwhelming majority of Arizonans, more than 90% in fact, believe abortion should be legal. I think that Republicans feel like that's disingenuous, that the Democrats' position is one that voters also aren't cool with, which is no limitations on abortion whatsoever. So I don't fully understand her position, but I think what you outlined is correct, which is if the so-called territorial law were to go away, that the 15-week law would go into effect. But I also don't think she supports that. So I think what she's actually talking about is proactively passing something that basically legalizes all abortion in the state. And I, I don't think there'd be one Republican vote for that. And I don't even think all the Democrats would vote for that because there are some Democrats now in the legislature who identify as pro-life um, because they do support certain limitations uh, on abortion. And I, I think that's different than Governor Hobbs's position. This issue had great urgency last summer, given the Supreme Court's ruling in the Mississippi case. Is this issue just bound to be unresolved now for the next few years? Do we see any kind of possibility of a breakthrough? Well, I think what Stacey's ta talking about of something at the ballot would probably be if the Democrats wanted to continue to use it as a political issue or have it solved in their minds, that I think would be where they would go. But again, um, I'm not convinced that their position would be one that would be acceptable to most Arizonans. I actually think the 15-week law is one that is maybe more of a 70, 80 percent issue. But I, I don't think that's what the Democrats would want to put on the ballot. So, yeah, I think that this is going to be an issue that drags on, that different states are going to deal with differently. Um, but I don't see much of a resolution this session. And it seems like there's acknowledgement of that by kind of ditching this idea of a special session. 
Yeah, the only thing I would add is the reason that the Hobbs administration says that they're ditching the special session is this appeals court ruling out of Tucson in December that said the 15-week ban, well, rather it said the 1864 near total ban could not be enforced. So they feel like they have a little bit of an insurance policy that abortions are, at least for now, legal through 15 weeks. Another sort of long-term issue, and that is water as it relates to Arizona, the governor's talking about a task force and calling it a priority, but that doesn't sound especially urgent uh, to my ears. What is different about her approach and Governor Ducey's approach? Well, we saw in Governor Ducey's last year really placing a priority on a huge investment of a billion dollars in water issues generally. Some of that is for conservation, but the bulk of it was for desalination. This sort of technology he really wanted to pursue to make more water available. Governor Hobbs, in contrast, has sort of labeled that as like a single shot solution that she says isn't enough. You need to look more broadly at water issues. Experts here in Arizona and across the nation agree there is no silver bullet solution to our current water challenges. We must evaluate and invest in both short and long-term efforts that will help us achieve our goals. This reality drives the three components of my plan for a resilient Arizona. But in her speech, we heard commitments to reviving or creating two offices within her own office to look at the issue, to bring people together. Both she and Attorney General Chris Mays have said they want to stop um, the Ducey-era land leases to Fondamont, the Saudi Arabian company that is leasing um, land in western Arizona for to grow alfalfa and using water resources. So there's a lot of big goals and intentions there. But in terms of how the nuts and bolts of that get carried out, we're still waiting for details. One thing that stands out to me is the difference that we've heard in terms of first take reaction as to as solutions by this, on this issue rather. Governor Ducey has talked about desalination. I've heard from some in the federal delegation things about redirecting water from other parts of the country Whatever approach you take, these are multi-billion dollar solutions to a problem that is truly existential in the desert. Daniel, are the policymakers, the shareholders in Arizona on the same page to begin with as far as a viable way forward on this issue? And if not, how do we get there? I think that this will be the issue of her governorship, you know, and there was a lot of focus in the speech on education. I don't think that the fever pitch on education funding is what it was eight years ago because there has been more dollars. And she will always be given the benefit of the doubt by the education community because she's a Democrat. I think water is really the issue that will be the main issue that she has to tackle because it is getting worse and there has been a down payment by the governor and the legislature of a billion dollars plus. So how does that get utilized? I think there is actually interest in adding to that pot of money. I've heard uh, members on both sides talk about that. And if this isn't dealt with, it is a huge problem for the state from not just a sustainability standpoint, but an economic standpoint. So I think that it's going to have to be an all of the above approach. I think there is a lot of interest and excitement about the possibility of desal. In California, it has been an issue 
that um, has become very controversial because the environmental groups don't like it. So I felt like that the speech was kind of setting up that she may want to go in a different direction on this than some who desire the a desal approach plus. Um, what that looks like, I don't know. But I also think that this uh, authority that's been put into place will have, I mean, these are largely Governor Ducey and legislative appointees, including from the Democrats. And it does seem like there is coalescing an agreement that it desal should be a large component and that the details need to be hashed out. Speaking about details, the budget numbers that we expect to see later this week, they have to add up. Mm -hmm. uh, these are always aspirational documents. It seems especially so this year with a Democratic governor facing a Republican legislature. Anything that either of you are especially looking for in what the governor releases? I'm, I'm really interested to see how much she puts into public education. In the Monday State of the State, she gave us some sort of more nitty-gritty details about certain policies, but said she wanted to make a historic investment in capital funding for things like school buildings. So we don't have a number on that. She talked about teacher retention and just funding to fill the teacher shortage, but we don't have a number on how much that looks like. And one thing I'm also looking at is she, in her first budget, will have about $2.5 billion of surplus left over from Governor Ducey's time in office. And I'm really curious about how she spends that big pool of money. I think it'll be fast. I agree with all that. I think it will be fascinating to see the programs that mostly Republican programs that have been put into place and what she proposes rolling back. She talked about this program that's called results-based funding, although she didn't name it by name, where schools that are higher performing and low-income schools that are higher performing even more so receive bonus dollars for high achievement, um, that she wants to roll that back. That was a big signature program for Republicans along with what you talked about on, on ESAs and other things. So I think that this will be a real cold splash of water for Republicans of the new world order um, that we're in. And for every action, there's an equal reaction. And so I see this budget process, at least initially, not really being a very productive conversation because I think this this will be viewed more as a political document, and then they'll have to figure out how to move forward. If I can just add one thing, House Speaker Ben Toma was asked about the budget speech, which is coming up this Friday, and he says if it's the same tone as the Monday State of the State, it's DOA. Okay. So lastly, I want to talk about the symbolism and the image that emerged from Governor Hobbs's State of the State. Um, rhetorically, how did she do with the broader audience that is always part of the equation with these things, not just the 90? Daniel, I'll, I'll let you take first swing. Well, I think she's still finding her way. I think she's still um, figuring out how she wants to uh, approach this position. Um, a fascinating time. I mean, I think that um, my sense is that the Democrats were as surprised by the outcome of the election as the Republicans. And so I'm not sure that even some of the folks who are advising her 
contemplated that yesterday was ever going to happen, that there would be a state of the state by a Democratic governor. So I think, like I said, my sense is, just from observing, is that they're trying to figure out how to move forward. The business community, certain elements of it, really did line up behind her. A lot of Governor Ducey's um, supporters got behind her. Yet at the same time, it was like the second time in a couple days that she kind of took a broadside against Governor Ducey uh, since being sworn in. So I think that she and her team are figuring out, or at least they should, what is the Governor Hobbs brand? And I don't think we can put our finger on that just yet. I'll also say it was interesting for me sitting in the chamber rather than in the gallery or on the ninth floor watching this because I sat through kind of the entire day for the first time. And I was like, wow, this is a really interesting exercise. And I probably should have paid more attention to this because there were a number of things that happened before the speech. There was a a woman who lived through the Holocaust who spoke. And that was, I think, a really, she had a really inspiring message. A leader, Cano, the Democratic leader in the House, did something I thought was fairly extraordinary, especially when we see what happened in Washington this past week, where he seconded the motion for Republican Ben Toma to be speaker and then closed all debate. And so you had kind of all that happen and then this speech that I think had a different tone and it kind of was like several elements that didn't match up. So for me, I was like, well, I probably should have watched all of this play out before the governor gave the speech because I think it the day then took on a different tone. Some of that was unavoidable, I think, just because of where our politics are. Um, but I do think that for them to have success, even though we have a strong executive in the state and she will ultimately have veto power, to get some stuff done she's going to need Republicans. There just aren't the majorities. And she's probably going to have to work through legislative leadership. This is different than the Napolitano days where you could chip off a couple folks. I don't think that's going to happen because I don't think anyone is going to want to be the lone person who is alienated from their entire caucus or party. So she is going to have to work, I think, through the speaker and president to build some kind of coalition of the willing around issues like water and infrastructure um, and things that aren't partisan or at least shouldn't be. I think also more broadly, looking at Arizonans generally who tuned in or read about the speech yesterday, the jury is still out on whether she keeps these commitments of bipartisanship, right? And with all of the challenges to doing that that Daniel is talking about, it's notable to me that I got a couple of questions from readers about what she said about border security, which is a very tiny part of the speech, but was in there. Um, so I think my sense of what the public is looking for is how she fulfills these pledges of, remember her campaign pledge, sanity versus chaos? How do we get sanity in a Republican-dominated legislature where members are walking out on her? And it is, that is a good reminder. I mean, the top two issues among independents, which presumably she won by a large margin, 
the top two issues were the economy and border security. And so I think those um, are issues that that at least a lot of the voters who probably voted for her would like a laser focus on. Very good. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you both for joining the show, as always. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? I'm at at Scarponato. It's a good phonetic Italian name. <laughs> um, and I'm at S. Barchinger, which I spell every time. So S-B-A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R. That is it for this week, Gaggle listeners. We're looking forward to the year ahead. Do you have questions you want us to answer or topics you want us to cover? Well, reach out to us via email at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word all spelled out. Or give us a call at 602-444-0804. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share it with a friend. You can follow me on Twitter at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. The editor and producer of today's episode is Amanda Luberto. You can follow her at Amanda Luberto. That's L-U-B-E-R-T-O. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.